Um, although we just prayed, I want to pray with you again for this reason. What we're coming into right now is perhaps the most intimidating passage of Scripture I have ever taught on. Maybe the only comparison would be when we were in the book of Revelation and working through that, and specifically about the second coming. We're going to be in Exodus 19. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, the verses will be up on the screen, but there's also Bibles around you in the chairs in front of you. And I find this passage that we're about to look at to be incredibly intimidating and downright scary. I think you'll see why, and you'll understand what God expects of us, and by this I mean all of humanity, but especially those who name the name of God as being their Savior. Let's pray together, and then we'll step into it. Father, we we freely recognize that were it not for the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us and your capacity to cause your word to come alive, that we would fail to comprehend the magnitude of your call upon us, but also we recognize, we fail to recognize how holy and majestic you are. And yet you make it really evident in this passage, and that's why I find it so intimidating. And I ask right now that through the work of your Holy Spirit, you would cause us to see how this is supposed to impact us. It definitely impacts our view of who we are, and especially of who we are before you. But more than that, God, this is all about you and who you are. So I pray that you would give us a fresh set of eyes, and we ask for this in Jesus' majestic name and all God's people said, amen. Know this, on a normal weekend, I try and come up with maybe three pages of notes to keep me from going off the rails, so I I stay in my lane with you. This week, I had 38 pages, and I shrunk it way, way down. And some people came to me after the first service and said, can I see the other 35? I'd like to know what you didn't cover, because what is here is so incredibly rich. And to get right to Exodus 19, I need to summarize for you what happens in 17 and 18 real quick. In 17, we saw that they were grumbling a lot in the wilderness, and people were complaining to Moses that they didn't have enough supplies. And Moses had to deal with that, and eventually in 17, he he strikes a rock, water comes gushing out of the rock, and provides everybody with what they need. And then when you come into chapter 18, Jethro shows up, which is Moses' father-in-law, and he tells him some really good business management principles and shows him how to structure things so that he won't burn out. But then when you come to chapter 19, we have reached a decisive moment in the book of Exodus, not only because we're halfway through the book at this point, but because we've got this large group of individuals who've been in the wilderness for three months since they left Egypt. And this new nation is arriving in mass at a region known as Sinai, where literally the Mount of Sinai is at. Mount Sinai comes from the peninsula called Sinai. Now, Israel will stay at the base of this mountain for an entire year, nearly a year. The rest of Exodus, they will never leave Mount Sinai. And they will find themselves there watching Moses interact with God. And you will see Moses ascend and descend Mount Sinai seven times. Their arrival at this location is certainly no accident. They have this massive whirlwind leading them. 
The very presence of God is right among them every single day. And it's like this gigantic searchlight that shades them during the day and provides a torch for them at night. So they know that they're supposed to be there, but the contrast between a good and pleasant land flowing with milk and honey, what they were told they were going to have in the promised land, and this stark wilderness, this utterly barren landscape, it couldn't be more surreal to them because they know they're not in the promised land. In chapter 17 last week, we saw that this grumbling nature keeps coming back, this characteristic in which they're really complaining about being in the wilderness. Go with me on the screen, chapter 17, verse 2. The people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and they grumbled against Moses and said, why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Behind all the grumbling is this question. Why are we here? This isn't where we're supposed to be. We're told we're going to the promised land. We've been looking for that. Well, in reality, the promised land has never been further away geographically than the place that they are now. They're on the southern end of the Sinai Peninsula, in the middle of the wilderness. They couldn't be further away. So not only deep in the wilderness, they're traveling southeast, and they thought they'd be heading north. For Moses' part, this is really familiar territory to him. He's in a region that he knows well. He spent 40 years here when he ran from Pharaoh as a very young man. And this is the same location where he encountered the burning bush. The people know they have more than enough information to know they're at the right address. They're still getting manna deliveries every day. DoorDash is showing up every night with quail. They constantly have their needs met. And when Moses strikes the rock, the water comes gushing forth and they can refill their tanks and they can water their animals and all of that along with the fact that the pillar has led them right to this place. But now, in the shadow of this very foreboding mountain, they discover that Sinai is actually the primary destination. But they have no idea whatsoever that the Lord is about to unleash on them the single most spectacular sound and light show that has ever been seen. God is about to light up an entire mountain with His glory. This particular event I find in Scripture to be unparalleled, perhaps maybe only by the flood of Noah for its catastrophe or by what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah, by the explosion of fire, or for sure paralleled by what you see in the second coming in the book of Revelation when Jesus returns. Other than that, I can't find anything else that even compares. But beyond all of it, what you discover here is that God reveals Himself, and the Word of God speaks, and the impact of it, of this moment, will affect the entire global population of planet Earth. And more importantly, it places the arrival of Jesus in the first century at a whole new level. And by that, I mean this. The ancients certainly knew that there would be a deliverer coming one day who would crush the head of the serpent. But there's no way that they could possibly grasp how that would be magnified by the law that's about to be given at Mount Sinai. Verse 1, chapter 19, starts this way. In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, 
on the very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain three months to the day. Now they're in the wilderness, this region called Sinai, verse 3, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and to the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So Moses climbed Sinai to listen to God, and God asked for a commitment. And verses 4 through 6 summarize what's known as the Sinai Covenant. We'll expand on that in just a moment. If you happen to be an attorney this morning, or perhaps you're a student of the law, or you just love law and order and you really appreciate it, you're going to love what's coming here. Because what you find in this agreement that God's entering into is that God identifies who the parties are of this agreement. First of all, He says, it's me, Yahweh. And I'm identifying that you, Israel, are going to enter into this. And He reminds the recipients of how they came to be united by clarifying for them, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. You have been witnesses to this. You know that this happened. And then He encapsulates the entire story of Pharaoh's humiliation in one sentence. And then in one sentence further, He compresses all the way down to a sentence, the escape from Egypt by saying, and I bore you on eagle's wings. I am the one who rescued you. And then comes this very crucial summary statement in which your God captures the entire picture of Scripture in one phrase, and He summarizes election and grace. Watch this. I brought you to Myself. Exodus 19, God chose you, He did the work, I brought you. I'm the one who did this effort. So that reminds them and it reminds us, church, we are not here by our own efforts. They are not there at the base of Mount Sinai by their own efforts. So the very next thing God does is He lays out the stipulations and He lays out the sanctions for them. Verse 5. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Although the whole earth is mine, and I built it, and I designed it, and it all belongs to me, you're going to be my treasured possession. That New Hope is one of the highest titles that you can be given, and it's given of God Himself. Let me show you the Hebrew word that God actually uses. Moses wrote this in Hebrew. He records what God said in the Hebrew language. Here's the Hebrew word for what He just said when He said, you will be my treasure. This particular word is pronounced seg-u-lah. Seg-u-lah is a good word to get down because it speaks about you. God's saying, you're going to be my protected royal property. If you have a safe deposit box, or perhaps you have a safe at home, or a place where you store away jewels, or maybe titles to your property, or deeds to your car, you put something that's very precious to you in a place of safekeeping. That's exactly what kings did. Kings of old had treasuries, the king's treasury where he would keep his most prized possession. King David did exactly this very thing. You find in the book of First, First, First Chronicles that when they're building the temple, that 
David gave an offering out of the temple from his personal segulah. Let me show you this on the screen. In my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures, segulah, of gold and silver for the temple of my God. What had happened was they ran out of money for construction. And so David goes to his own silver and his own gold in his personal treasury and draws out of that the thing that is most precious to him, and he gives it to the work of God. God uses this exact same word to describe his own people. And we should be recognizing at this point they're not precious because of who they are. They've only been out of slavery for weeks. They don't have anything. They don't have any experience with God. They come to the table with nothing. So they're not precious because of who they are, but because of who God is. This God who rescued them. And the same is true of us today. If we're in Jesus Christ, we're precious to God because we're in Jesus. And admittedly, there's times when we do not feel so precious. There's times when we're struggling with work responsibilities. We, we struggle with illness. We're weighed down by stress. Maybe there's conflicts in our home, conflicts in our social life, and we don't feel quite so precious. I want you to know this morning, regardless of the struggles that you're facing today, if you're in Jesus Christ, you're precious to God. You've been drawn close to Him because of Jesus. I say that emphatically because of what you find in the New Testament. Let me show you this, because Peter takes the exact same words that Moses used, and he attaches it to the church. Look with me on the screen, 1 Peter 2.9. You, New Hope Church, if you're in Jesus Christ, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And there's the word again the treasure of God. You are the treasure of God. Every human life on planet earth is loved by God. Every soul is loved by God. But those, those who humble themselves and receive the forgiveness of sin that Jesus offers and they're justified, those individuals have been made holy and pure in the sight of God before the living God, which makes that person precious to God. And they're loved with a unique, everlasting love, which means God's made you prepared to be with Him for eternity. You're destined for eternity with your Father. Do we deserve it? It's a good time for group participation. <laughs> Do we deserve it? Yeah, I agree with you. Are we given it by God's grace? Absolutely. God values us so highly that He says, you are worth the blood of my very own Son. So from a 30,000-foot view, what have you seen so far? There's two really crucial truths coming out of here about God's rescue both then and now. Let me show you the first one. These are in your notes as well. Those whom He redeems, they come under the authority of His Word. Those whom He redeems come under His authority. Check this against that story. The blood of the Lamb has already rescued them. It covered them and brought them into a new life. They are there at the base of the mountain because they're responsible to hear God's voice and to heed God's voice and to obey what God is calling them to do because He's giving them a new direction for their lives. Here's the second one. This will blow most people away. 
the grace of God precedes the law of God. And this is a huge reality for us to get down. In other words, God's grace first saves us, and then to those whom He has saved, He reveals His ways. Therefore, the characteristics of those who are redeemed is those individuals, they would know the Word of God and they would live by the Word of God. So let me go back to what he said in verse 6, what he expects of people whom he has redeemed. Verse 6 said, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So we would say they've been chosen, selected, or theologically speaking, elected, chosen and elected by God for a distinct purpose. Dr. Steger is a pastor in Germany, and he wrote it this way. I want you to see his summary. He said, election is always for a purpose. It represents a calling to a purposeful life of obedience, not merely the enjoyment of safety or comfort. In other words, to be a priest of God means that you have kingdom responsibility. And we've just been told that we're all priests in God's kingdom. We all have priestly responsibility. What is a priest's role in the kingdom of God? Well, for sure to bring humans closer to God. Uh, Regardless, if you could just set aside any of your background, regardless of what tradition you might have been raised in, think biblically about what the Bible describes a priest's role is. A priest's role is to bring people closer to God, to dispense God's truth, to dispense God's favor to deal with discipline, and to demonstrate what holiness looks like to humans. So we're reading that Israel has just been called to this function. And Peter tells us that the church, not the pastors, the entire church, has been called to this exact same role. So what is God's design in Exodus 19? God's design is that in a perfect world, this new nation of Israel, that they would be an example to the nation that other nations would see their beliefs and they would honor God and they would want to follow God, and that Israel will proclaim the truth and they will invite others into a relationship to follow God. And, And number three, that Israel would preserve His Word accurately, and they did handle that very well. Verse seven, so Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. There's a pattern that's being established here. Moses has gone up to the mountain. He's heard from God. He's delivered the information from God. And he's gone down and heard the people, and he's taking the information back to God. So he's functioning as a prophet. What you notice is he's not making up anything on his own. He's relaying verbatim, word for word, all that God said to him, that's what he presented to the people. That was what was just summarized there. And what we find out is it's not just the elders who are agreeing to this. It says, all the people answered together, we'll do it all. We'll do everything that God's calling us to do. Just a speculation, it must be that the elders of Israel, that they carried all this information to all these individual campsites, to all the tents. Remember, there's two million people. And so they relay the information, they hear the response, they carry the response back to Moses, and Moses carries it back up to God. Why the process of up and down? God can certainly hear them. He knows what they're saying. 
What's the up and down process doing? It's reminding these people that they're not dealing with Moses. They're dealing with God. And Moses is just the representative that this one true God is not easily approached. And there's a way to do it, that this one God is greater and more dangerous than any force they've ever encountered ever before. Go forward, verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. Let me frame for you what's about to unfold here so that you really get it down, especially when God says, I want them to believe in you, Moses, forever. What is about to unfold here is so unlike anything that you and I know. Because we live in an age that sees God as very user-friendly. And in our mindset, this user-friendly God, He can be approached at just the drop of a hat as opposed to thinking of Him as majestic and awesome. And the result is in our generation, it has produced a really casual approach of God. And, and I'm not speaking of the style of worship. I'm talking about the attitude of most people in their heart. And I ask this question of myself, which would be a really good question for you to ask of yourself. Is it possible, church, that we treat God too casually and too lightly and we've become a bit too comfortable? I'm going to read you a quote. It comes from Annie Dillard. She wrote a book back in the 1980s. It's not going to go on the screen. What I would like for you to do is just close your eyes and listen to the picture that she creates as she describes this. Annie said it this way. On the whole, I do not find Christians outside the catacombs sufficiently sensible of the conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. Annie's got a picture in her head about how casually we approach God. So I want you, in light of that, to catch the flow of what you've first seen here. Exodus 19 began with this assurance of God's love, reminding all of these individuals, these people whom He has delivered, I rescued you on eagle's wings, which is an astonishing expression of intimacy. You're mine. I brought you in. And in response, Israel said, we'll do everything that you ask of us. Everything that you ask, we'll do. And Moses, we saw in, in verse 8, brings the answer back up to God, and God in return tells him, I'm going to come see you guys then. I'm going to come down among you. And Moses learns it's God's intention to make a personal appearance. And by seeing this and by hearing this direct communication, the outcome will be visible audible evidence of God's messages to Moses because God wants to build confidence in these people that Moses isn't making this stuff up. 
This is all real. You need to know that going forward. Verse 10, the Lord also said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around saying, beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. Doesn't sound very seeker-friendly, does it? Hang with me. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman really want to make sure I understand that one. Where is that coming from? Okay, first catch this. While in Egypt as slaves for 400 years, they have lived and worked in a polytheistic society. Polytheistic meaning many gods, all small g's, and they've approached those small g gods very casually. God of the frogs, God of the river, God of the sun, God of the crickets. And they approached them however they wanted to. It was a highly pagan culture. They are about to discover that this one true God is not lightly or casually encountered. In context, Israel is an elect people. They've been chosen by God. And they've been redeemed. And they've been brought near. And they've been instructed to obey. But beyond that lies this reality that even though they belong to God and they said we're committed to Him, God's calling them to personal holiness. And He says, if you're going to approach me, you're going to approach me with purity and you're going to consecrate yourself. And consecration demands purity. Consecration, in case you're wondering, it it means eliminating the things from your life that are unacceptable to God. So eliminating the objectionable, well, what did Moses just list that was objectionable? He said, you need to wash. You gotta wash your body, you gotta wash your clothes, you gotta purify yourself in the best way you can, and to make sure that you're not distracted because women are beautiful, guys stay away from the women. That's a prohibition because they could be easily distracted and he wants them to stay on point. See, when laws were written at this period of time, laws were always written as though they were written to men. And the women understood that. They also applied to them, but the men had the responsibility first. And so Moses said to them, guys, stay on point. Don't get distracted with the other things going around. Stay away from the beautiful women and understand what you're about to do. See, God's design is to show in the most visible way possible the seriousness of entering into His presence. God's design is that you and I would understand that what you saw this weekend take place in England when a new king was coronated to the crown was nothing but human standards of what it means to approach a king. And if we can treat an earthly king with that much honor and dignity, how should we be treating the king of the universe? So we go forward with that thought I didn't design him to get coronated on this weekend. It just happened to land on this day. Go with me to verse 16. 
So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. There's been a lot of speculation over the years of what might be going on here. A lot of people think, well, maybe that was a volcano. I would disagree with that. Volcanoes are very cool. But I think you're going to disagree as you go forward in seeing what happens here because morning dawns with this amazing sound and light show. And there's thunder and there's lightning and then to add to it, there's a very, very loud trumpet and we're told the exact same thing is going to happen again when you encounter Jesus at the throne, Revelation chapter 4 verse 5. Look at the comparison. It says, from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Have you ever been so afraid that you shuddered, that it physically made you quake? That's what we're being told about what's happening here for these individuals. Those who are in battle, military battle, have described being in conflict and fighting for their life causes them to have such an adrenaline rush that they shake so violently, sometimes they can't get control of their limbs. This is the way this word is used here when we're told they're frightened, the word karad, to shudder with terror. And mind you, this is just the pre-show. This is just the warm-up to what's coming. This wilderness area that they're in, in front of this mountain, if we have Sinai correctly geographically where it's located on the Saudi Arabian Peninsula, the Sinai Peninsula, there's a big valley in front of this mountain, about 400 acres. And there's mountains around it on either side. So this is like a giant amphitheater. And these individuals are walking from their camp on the valley floor towards the base of the mountain. And there's hundreds of thousands of individuals who are getting in line behind Moses, which had to take hours for them to get to the base of Mount Sinai, verse 17. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. Obviously, we're piping in the thunder, but I want you to drink it in for a moment. standing at the base of the mountain, hundreds of thousands of people, and we're told there's thumber, thunder rumbling off the valley walls, echoing back and forth, and then added to it is verse 19. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. And the Hebrew text literally reads this way. As for Mount Sinai, smoke, all of it, a complete black, dark blanket coming over the mountain and engulfing it, and out of that, 
lightning flashing and the earth is shaking and the thunder is pealing and then the sound of the trumpet and there's a powerful increase in the volume and it's so piercing and it's so terrible and it's so intolerable that it fractures the emotions as the smoke billows up towards the sky and spreads out over the mountain. And that's the moment when God descends on top of the mountain in fire, not just in fire. The Hebrew text reads that in the form of fire, God descends on the mountain. In response, the entire mountain quakes violently. At the same time, the trumpet is getting louder and louder. All of nature responds to the presence of its Creator. That's why you find in Jesus' day that when He's crucified, the sky went completely black and the earth shook with a violent earthquake. When He's resurrected, the earth shook with a violent earthquake. And when He comes again, we're told that all the forces of nature and all the elements will be present the lightning, the thunder, the fire, the dense cloud, the violent shaking, and then consistently a loud trumpet blast. But church, what we have here is not God the judge. He's not bringing wrath and damnation. These are the people God treasures. These are the people He loves that He rescued on eagle's wings. This is the God of grace and redemption, summoning to His presence the people whom He loves, but at the same time wanting everyone to understand the preeminence of His holiness. And all of them are seeing this happen all at once while the mountain is ablaze. And then Moses is summoned up again. Go with me. Verse 20. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, go down and warn the people so that they do not break through to the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. And also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, or else the Lord will break out against them. So while the people stay at the bottom, they're down in the valley, Moses is called up to to the top again. And mind you, this guy's 80 years old. And God says, I want you up there again. And he seems to be able to ascend and descend with no difficulty whatsoever. And once again, when he gets up there, God commands, do not allow anybody to enter the holy area surrounding the base. And most people would read this description and say, okay, I'm good with that. But what would cause someone to want to breach the barrier? The caution tape has been put up all over the place. Do not cross the line. Why would someone want to cross that barrier? Well, obviously, human nature is that we would be irresistibly attracted to the chance to see God. And God says, obviously, there's a real danger or He would not be warning so specifically. How do I understand that in our day and age? They're just like many individuals in society today who have a very immature view of God theologically. See, they've just come out of this polytheistic background. They come from a pagan culture. They're completely new to the basics of God's majesty and God's holiness. And there's apparently a serious risk of people trying to follow Moses up the mountain. So Moses knows they know the warning, 
And he questions, God, why would you have to tell them a second time? Watch what happens. Verse 23, Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, set the bounds about the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down again, go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you, but do not let the priest and the people break through to come to the Lord, or he will break forth upon them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Church, do you catch what's going on here? God is instructing us on the massive worth of coming into His presence and to be able to hear the Word of God because His desire is that Moses and all the people will hear the Ten Commands of God at the same time in God's own voice audibly and comprehensibly in the form of Ten Commands which are about to be thundered from the top of the mountain. I'm just going to compress it down for you because we're going to come back to it next week. Look at the Ten Commands. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. And with that, the commands end, and we get the reaction of the people. Verse 18, all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us. We will die. Ten commands spoken directly by the Lord in His own voice, and those who hear it find it so terrifying and so horrible, it is beyond their ability to endure. Now, obviously, most people, when they read that, would say, I totally want to be there. Sign me up for that. I'd be there in a heartbeat. I'd love to see this. Can I remind you that these people have lived and walked with God for three months firsthand? These are the same people who saw all the plagues in Egypt. They understood what it was for the angel of death to arrive and kill all the firstborn of an entire nation. They walked through an ocean floor with walls of water piled up around them. They've seen the pillar of fire. They've seen water gushing forth from a rock. But this is far too much to encounter for a human to endure. Moses' own reaction in this moment is captured in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews. His outburst is just raw human emotion. Look with me, Hebrews 12, 21. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. The word trembling here is the Greek word ekphobos. Have you ever been scared out of your wits? Read the definition. Ekphobos means literally to be scared out of one's wits. And Moses is the guy who stood at the burning bush. He said, it's so awesome. This magnificent event remains completely unequaled until the day that the Lord Jesus Christ returns in blazing fire. 
2 Thessalonians 1.7 says this, the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire. It's God coming back. That same God, that same Jesus stressed something that He wanted us to know in this day and age in regards to the church. Jesus Himself said that as great as Moses was, and Aaron, and Joshua, and Miriam, as great as they were all the way to the days of John the Baptist, the last Old Testament saint to die, as great as they were, the least person in the kingdom of God, meaning in the church, is greater than them. How can Jesus say that? He says that because if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the presence of the living God in you. It's a stunning thought. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit present in you is such a huge spiritual advantage because if you have the possession of the Holy Spirit, you have direct access to God. It is the hallmark of the superiority of the new covenant. Church, I suspect that one day when you and I are in glory together, when we're in heaven, and we see Jesus on His throne, we're going to be shocked in eternity that we were ever granted even the ability to approach Him in prayer. When we see the majesty and the splendor of the King of kings on His throne and angels bowing down and choirs singing before Him and the cherubim and the seraphim standing as guards around the throne, I don't know about you, but I'm personally expecting to be laid low that I ever approached Him casually which allows us to transition to communion because we're specifically warned not to take communion lightly. So as we get ready to take communion, I want to remind you of something that you just saw this morning that tells us who we are to God and who He is to us. Look with me again at Exodus 19.4. I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to Myself. These people whom you've read about today are the people whom God loves and treasures and draw to Himself as a priceless possession. And He wants us to remember, and He wanted them to remember, that they're not there by their own efforts. So He has to say, I brought you in. I brought you to Myself, and I did it on eagle's wings. The act of deliverance in their case has already been done. The Red Sea experience is behind them. If you're in Jesus Christ this morning, the act of deliverance has already been accomplished for you. It had a, a, its accomplishment on the cross, but you received into your life what God offered to you. And God's simple command to you is that you will obey my word because you belong to me. What's true in the Old Testament is new, true in the New Testament. God saves us just like He saved them. He saved them from the Red Sea. He saved us in Jesus Christ. And He saved us before He commanded us to live like it. So we enter into the relationship with God on the sole basis, say amen if you agree with this, on the sole basis of His grace and His grace alone. That's why we're here. We're not there by our own efforts, but because He drew us in. 
God's desire is that our conduct would match our confession, that they would be consistent. So to help us remember who we are and what He did for us, we have communion. And that's why Jesus said, remember what I did for you. Remember this day. Let me take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We prepare our hearts for communion, and we're about to receive something that is just an incredibly high privilege. If you're new to New Hope, this is open to you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. I'll give you instructions in just a minute. This is what we're told from the Bible that Paul wrote down. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Don't forget what I did. In the same way, He took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes, because He's coming back again, isn't He, church? So we're proclaiming His death, that He died for our sins, and we keep doing that until He comes again. And that's why Paul says this is such a huge warning. Verse 27, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. If you're new to New Hope, our process here for communion is that we have tables in the front and in the back, and those tables are there for you to come up to to pick up the elements. But we allow time for you right now in the quietness of the seat that you're in to deal with God. You got something you need to confess? Do it in the quietness of your seat. Talk to the Father. He's ready and willing to listen. You're in relationship with Him, just talk to Him about where you're at in that relationship. Don't come to the table lightly, but seriously, evaluating yourself, examine yourself. Pick up the elements and take them back to your seat. I was going to ask you a favor if you happen to be in the two outside wings. It would be very helpful to us because the amount of people here, if you would come to this table here in the front and if you guys would come to this table here in the front. This time right now is for you to examine yourself, talk to your father, and then I'll come back and lead you through the rest.